It's good to see you all. I'm going to need this today. To be with you all. If this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors here. And a little bit about Redemption. We are at one church. We have multiple congregations. You just happen to be here with us at Redemption Tempe. We believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Simply put, what that means is we believe that God owns all things and that he is redeeming all things in the word and through the work of his son, Jesus. Therefore, we want to make disciples in response to that truth that we don't see any area that is exempt from us as being Christians and redeeming in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we do. We do this primarily uh, through Sunday services, classes, as well as redemption communities, which are our smaller gathering of people who meet in various places and various times uh, throughout the week to encourage one another in Christ. Uh, if you have any uh, questions or you want any information about anything that you've heard or you will hear today, best thing you could do is take the information card that is in the chair in front of you, fill out your name, your email address. Um, later, after the time of the message, you have an opportunity to drop those off in the offering boxes. Um, and we'd love to get back to you and then meet with you and uh, answer your questions. A couple announcements. Next week, uh, this upcoming Wednesday at 6.30 to 8 p.m., we are having First Wednesdays. Uh, the topic for First Wednesdays is food and faith. Jim Mullins will lead that conversation as well as a, a panel um, that will be up here. Someone who runs an urban garden who goes at Ar- Arcadia campus in Phoenix. Uh, someone who's, an, who's a dietitian um, as well as restaurant owners. And so we have an opportunity to ask them questions about food and how we could be stewards of our body, our money, our time uh, with food. And then after that, we're going to go outside here to my left in the parking, family parking lot. And we're going to have some food, some food trucks. Uh, that would be there. Food will be provided as well as a farmer's market where you can buy some fresh produce. And so we hope to see you guys all there this Wednesday, 6.30 to 8 p.m. Second announcement is not two weeks from today. May 12th is Mother's Day. One, just be thinking about that. Um, Two, we're going to have baby dedications on Mother's Day. So that's May 12th. And so if you've had a child in the last year or maybe you just never uh, dedicated your children before the Lord and before the church, uh, we would love to be able to do that with you. Uh, We're going to do that again two weeks from today. Um, If you know, that's me. I've been waiting for this. Take that information card, fill out your name, your email address, and put baby dedication. Jason Raber will email you and get you all the information that we need from you and that you'll need in order for that day to go uh, smooth and fun for you and your family and whoever it is that you are dedicating that day. Uh, That's all I have for time announcements. If you guys have a Bible, meet me in Romans chapter 1. We've been in Romans chapter 1 for the past three weeks. Uh, We'll be there for the next three weeks. Um, If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. And keep it raised really high, and someone will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. Uh, Again, keep your hand raised really high if you don't have a Bible. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1. I believe if you have the Bible that we're handing out to you, it's going to be on page 611. Again, that's 611. Um, If you have not been with us, let me just briefly catch you up to where we are right now. We are in a series uh, on looking at the book of Romans. And by looking at it, meaning studying the book of Romans over 70 weeks. We are week four in this series. Um, last week, we looked at uh, God's wrath and how God's wrath is being revealed. We're going to look at that again today. And in the next few weeks, Paul, the writer of Romans, is going to be saying these are the effects when there is a worship disorder. Right? So these are the effects when men and women um, fell and, and to trust in God and follow God. These are some of the effects of that. And so we said we were going to look at God's wrath, and then today we're going to look at a theology of homosexuality. 
I mean, if you just read, if you listen to what Jason just read from the scripture, you kind of know where we're going um, in this moment. Um, Next week, we're going to come back and look at what is a Christian um, ethic and response to homosexuality. So this week, the theology. Um, Next week, how do we respond? What we're going to do later at the end of the sermon is I'm going to put an email address on the screen. Excuse me, not the end of the sermon, but the end of the service. And then there's going to be an email address where you can email any questions you have. I'm going to take all of those questions and, um, and look through those questions as I put through, uh, work through my message for next week to, to facilitate questions. Because here's what I do know. We all have questions, and they are broad. And um, I think for the, the sake of teaching through the Bible, it makes us teach unpopular and popular topics. Um, It it makes us teach things that we wouldn't normally teach from up front. Um, I've shared this with you before, and and I'm going to get to it a little bit when we start the message. My my brother, who is an openly uh, practicing homosexual, we we talk about this issue quite a bit. And and when I told him, hey, I'm going to be teaching about this on Sunday, he goes, why the heck would you do that, right? Um, and, and And I said, because the Bible says so. He goes, man, you guys should skip a verse, right? And, and, uh, and, um, and in all honesty, uh, many men that I know that are, that are pastors have said this is a topic that we would not address. And this is not something that we would just pull out of a hat and say, you know what we should do today? We should do this. However, that is the discipline of reading through the Bible and of teaching through the Bible. It says this is what God says, and so we're going to have to deal with it. And so uh, before we do, I just want to say a few things. One, it's why spend two weeks on homosexuality, Right. Like, the Bible speaks about far more things, way more than that. Like, it speaks about our consumerism more than that, about social justice and action, way more than that. Why would we spend two weeks on it? I think that's a valid question that we all wrestled with. Um, primarily is because we do it pastorally because it's, it's a contextual issue right now. It's something that people are talking about a lot. And many Christians are on a broad spectrum and not really having all the time a biblical worldview. You'll hear me say that a lot over the next few, few weeks. A biblical worldview um, to be able to address any topic, even the topic of sexual ethics. And so it would, I would be here for way too long to be able to do both in, in one message as opposed to having one message of saying, what did Paul say here? What does that mean? And answer a few objections. And then next week come back and say, okay, what does that mean for, for those of us who are Christians, those of us who are Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction or same-sex orientation? What does that mean for our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, our children? Like, like this, this, this is not the main issue here. It's not the main issue. It's not even Paul's main argument um, in Romans chapter 1, but it's a part of it. Um, and so that's where we will, we, will, we will begin. But as sensitive as it is, I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads with me. And um, let's just pray and a- acknowledge that we need Jesus, all of us, Christian or non-Christian, and let's pray for his spirit. Father, we thank you um, for your word, that you have revealed yourself to us through your world and your word. And Father, there are a lot of things about you and about your word that, that offend us. And and we can see in Romans last week, this week, next week, the week after, the next several weeks, Lord, that that Paul is trying to, through your word, offend us. And let us know that that there's no way, Lord, that we can be who we were created to be apart from the saving love and mercy and grace of your son, Jesus. God, I thank you for um, just all of us here as co-image bearers of your name. God, I pray for those who are here who do struggle with this topic, who struggle with it personally who struggle with it in their family. God, I pray for those who have never believed in you, who struggle in it and struggle with the way the church has handled it. And, and, just, and I ask, Lord, we all ask for just an unbelievable amount of your grace and your presence as we look at this, Lord, over the next two weeks. 
We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, when, when it comes to this topic, um, what Paul has for us here in Romans, f- first, I get here relationally. I shared that. I, I, I have a brother. My brother's older than I am. Uh, we grew up together. Um, he's always been uh, just uh, what I would say growing up different, right? And I would say with my brother was different than what we were. So it was not a shock to me uh, when my brother said that he was gay. It didn't shock. In fact, I don't think it shocked anybody. Um, it shocked anyone else around us, but it was one of those things for me, the way I dealt with it was, was probably as bad as you can deal with it, right? It was probably as bad as you can deal with it. I had just graduated from college. I was here, excuse me, from high school. I had come to Arizona, and I didn't want any part of it. To me, the best thing about it was I was completely separated from it, um, and not because I was homophobic or anything like that. There was just, for whatever reason, there was an embarrassment, sad. And I don't say this with any confidence. I don't say this at all with, man, what a great stance that I took on this. When, in fact, when my brother would come out here to, to visit me to go to, to, to watch my uh, football games at ASU, after the games, all the families would get together and stuff. And I would go, oh, man, I, you know, I'm going to have to, someone's going to ask me, man, hey, is your brother gay? And I'm going to have to say yes. And, and I kind of stood in that tension where, one, I didn't want anybody ever making fun of him. Um, and at the same time, it was awkward for me. And it was, it was, it was embarrassing. Well, then I become a Christian. Which, just from my brother's standpoint, and, and many of you who are here that are just invited by friends, you understand, like, historically, Christians, we just have not done a, a good job with this particular issue. And so now am I uh, not only um, uh, a jock, but then now I'm a Christian. My brother's going, okay, this is, is going to get worse, right? And what happened was uh, my sister, who we both love but is the biggest instigator in our entire family, um, starts stirring the pot on some conversations and made me have a hard conversation with my brother. It made my brother have a hard conversation with me. Uh, This was seven years ago, and it it was probably the best thing that could have ever happened to the both of us because we were able to understand where each other were coming from, understanding our stances. And I would say our relationship now is better than what it's ever been, ever been. I mean, and, and then from that conversation, I do believe that God himself had, had placed something within me, a desire for this particular community. Um, it, from experience, um, from the time that I first got in the ministry to the people that I worked with when I was not working at a church, to friends, to people, I am, for whatever reason, usually the first person that many people that I know will tell about their attractions or same-sex attractions or orientation for whatever reason. And it's something that I've, I've been able to embrace, I think, from the Lord and learn and learn and learn. And so I get there relationally. Um, I get here pastorally for this reason. There are people in our congregation, like there are people, normal people who love Jesus that struggle with this. And it's a place, this is, as much as we would say, we want this to be a place and a people where you can struggle out loud. N- not with this one. But that's not what we've said. We haven't said it explicitly, but implicitly we've communicated that you can struggle with anything, but don't bring this one up because I don't know what to do. Um, most of your friends are usually of the same sex, and as soon as you say I'm attracted to the same sex, people get awkward and weird. And so it, it, it's, a, it's a hard place. And so many people, they wrestle with it. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but they, they wrestle with it. So I get there pastorally, and not just because of people who struggle with it. I get there pastorally because we as Christians, of all people, of all people because of the cross of Christ, should be the most people to be able to embrace anyone. Anyone. Because think about it. By the very essence of us being Christian, what that means is we, can, we, we have admitted that we are failures and the only thing that could make us right was God's grace. Therefore, it was unmerited. We could never look down our nose towards anybody else, no matter where they're at, no matter what their struggle are, even if they are Christians. 
And so we should be able to get it, but we, we, we haven't been able to. And I'm not just saying redemption, Tempe. I'm just saying Christ, uh, Christians in general. And then lastly, we get, we, we get here, and this is probably the most important. This is what guides it. It just can't be relationally. It can't be experientially. It's theologically. The Bible speaks about it. The Bible is not silent about this issue, so it's not something that we have to just proceed with only wisdom. The Bible does speak to this issue. I would, I would agree that it doesn't speak to it a ton, but it does speak to this issue. It does not um, by any means pinpoint this issue as being the only issue, the worst issue, not at all. That's not even what Paul does. And so that, that's, that's where we, we, we get here at. Um, that's where we, we start at. And so if you have your Bibles, and we're going to look at the theology of this, and what I want to do is just to shape it, we're going to start with Romans. We're going to go back to Genesis to get a bigger picture of what Paul is saying. Come back to Romans. And then I want to, I want to bring up some objections to, to the traditional theological view on this stance. And then, and then also uh, just give some, some words of wisdom if we, if we have time. So Romans chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 24. It says, Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. Among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than their creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Okay, that's what we wrapped up last week. Um, just, just to fill you in what we've been, we've been saying is this is an issue of all people and it's an issue of sin and sin in itself at its very heart is putting something else in the place where God should be. It could be your family. It could be your career. It could be your friendships. It could be anything. And Paul is not saying just this issue. He's going anything that you worship other than God. Or or in other language, anything that you find your value, your identity, that you label yourself with, anything other than the personal work of Christ, he says this is idolatry. And we said this last week, the worst thing that a holy God could do, the worst thing that he could do in, in revealing his wrath is let you and let me be who we are apart from his divine intervention. Like the worst thing that he can do is just, is just let him, let, let us be who we are apart from him. Well, then Paul begins now to unpack, okay, what does this look like when there's, when there's distortion of worship? When there's a worship disorder, what types of things begin to happen? And then he picks up in verse 26, and it's a list that goes all the way down to verse 32. But he says, for this reason, God gave them up to the dishonorable passions for their women exchange. There's an action there. Their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. He's saying these are natural things in which they've exchanged. Now, if we're going to understand what Paul means by natural, we, we have to go back to the beginning of the story. Because natural is not what's your instinct, right? Um, he, he's not saying it's instinctive for someone to do this. Because some of them in our congregation would go, and some of them in this room would go, it's not instinctive for me to like the opposite sex. It's not. Um, ever since I was a kid, ever since I can remember, or whatever your story may be, ever since whatever it was that maybe or maybe not have happened, I know that I have, have had a crush that led to a sexual attraction of the same sex. And so Paul here is not saying that this is um, instinctive when he's saying by nature. He has everything to talk about design. He's everything about created order and what God designed for beauty and for human flourishing. So if you hold your place in Romans and go all the way back to the beginning of your your Bible in Genesis chapter 1, it's way in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, 
Here's what we have, right? Just to catch you up. God creates this world. He speaks from nothing, something. Out of nothing, he creates. He's the only being that can do that. God creates, he fashions, he forms. He creates the stars, he creates the moon. He creates the animals, he creates the water and the land. He separates the water and the land. This is God, this is God saying, it's good, it's good, it's good. Then, at the pinnacle, the apex of God's creation, he creates humanity. And here's what he says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Meaning, his image, meaning that's the, what, what the language is, the imago Dei, that we are created in God's image. That whether you believe in Jesus or not, you are an image bearer of God. Meaning you are created to reflect the beauty and the fullness of who God is. That, that animals don't have that. That men and women have that. We are created in his image. Well then, well then, not Paul, but then Moses, who writes Genesis, goes on to talk about what God does in Genesis chapter 2, if you turn the page. Beginning in, in verses 18, he says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So you see God right now giving, in God's authority, giving Adam the ability to name animals. Um, that was God saying, you are now my vice regent. You're going to help, help lead the creation and the culture. And so God brings all these animals over to Adam, and Adam's looking at the animals, and he names them. He goes, you, you, look, like a, you look like a porcupine. You look like a horse. I mean, whatever he starts to, to name these different animals. And then God goes forward, and he says this in verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds and the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a, a found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he was asleep, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, okay, here's, here's what's happened now. God took and made a woman out of the rib of man. Um, the picture there is that she's made from his side, that there literally is a, there's a complementary roles, that men and women are equal. Men are not supposed to dominate uh, women, that they're equal, and yet God made them different. That a woman biologically is a woman, and that a man biologically is a man. I'm not going to get into any uh, other details than that. No pictures or graphs. I think most of us understand that, right? And, and he said that, that's, what he, that's what he did. Now, now, God puts Adam down, creates Eve, brings Eve to Adam. It's the first time um, in creation that a man has seen a woman. All right, no sin here. What happens is most pastors right now usually go, oh, and he looks how hot she is and how sexy she is. That's, let me, I don't want to say this very intellectually, that's stupid, right? Um, it, it, because we do that because we are, especially men and women, we are tainted by sin, and so we want to label things as hot and sexy. Um, Adam's just there. Adam's never seen a woman, and something about seeing this woman, I think he sees the beauty of what God has created, not because of the way she's, she's uh, made, not because of her curves. He just sees a woman, and then he sings a song to her. Um, That was very natural for him to just sing a song. Now, the words that he sings um, worked then. Men, they probably wouldn't work now, right? Here's what he says. This at last is 
bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Right? That's the song. It's romantic. It was romantic to Eve, right? It may not be romantic to your wife, right? I don't think that if we, like, you are bone of my bones and flesh of, I'm going to call you woman, right? Like, no woman wants to be called woman, right? But this, this is the picture of marriage that, that, that God lays forth here, forth here. And the picture is because it's a part of his design. It's a part of his beauty. It's a part of human flourishing. This is before Genesis 3, which we're going to get to. That marriage in itself was a covenantal relationship where a man and a woman were committed to one another uh, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, relationally, socially, that they are one. It does not mean that the woman is incomplete without the man. And it does not mean that the man is incomplete without the woman. When it says that man should not be alone, it's not that man needed someone that he could be with physically or that woman needs someone that she can be with physically or even sexually. I do believe that people need to be with one another intimately. Intimately does not, hear me, intimately does not always mean sexually. Again, I think pastors, especially in the last 10 years, have, have over, in the church in general, has over-sexualized everything. We have an over-sexualized culture, and they make sex the main thing, and what many of us have done, and I could be guilty as well, is taking sex and going, man, this is awesome, as long as it's done in the context of marriage. Now, that is a true statement, but what we do is we say marriage is the highest degree of intimacy. Marriage is the highest degree of intimacy. And when you read the Bible, that's not true. Christian community is. The church. The person who wrote majority of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, was single. And when he begins to talk about singles, he doesn't go, ah, can't wait till you get married. He goes, I'm not getting married, bro. I know married people. They got issues. I can do more ish. I can do more ministries without it. He says, whether you're married, beautiful the Lord, or where you're single, meaning it's not primarily about sex. Adam and Eve's relationship, hear me, was not primarily about sex. You say, why are you hammering on this so hard? Because that's what we've made it. That's what we've made it. So before we can even talk about homosexuality, we have to understand, as even many of this room that are heterosexual, that we are not sexual beings. And let, me, let, me, let me pull back for a second, too, for, for some of you here who um, would not hold to the biblical convictions of creation and go, I've only seen God as being limited. I, I've only seen God as being someone who's a killjoy. He does not want me to express my passions. Um, God is not a killjoy. What he does is he, because he created you and he created the world, he always has your best in mind. And, and, and so with that, with that, um, God kills whatever it is that would kill your joy. In fact, the pervasive worldview in our culture, I would say, is a killjoy. I would say it, it's limited. Think about it. Macroevolutionary. If you have a macroevolutionary cosmology, which means the way that you look at the universe— well, it frames a conversation of humanity and only in biological terms, meaning that we are only, um, it teaches us that we are billions and billions of years of chance, natural selection, and time. And so it boils it down to this, that you are only what you are and your, um, your, your biological impulses. That's what's who you are. And so if you have that view, so again, a microevolutionary cosmology, that means it leads to uh, uh, the epistemology, which is just a word that how do you know things, that you can only know things by the physical world, thus the physical self. What that means is we, humanity, we are only what science tells us we are, bodies with evolutionary needs. That's limited. Genesis and Jesus 
tell us that we are far more than that, far more than just our bodies, far more than just our impulses, that we are, we are, also, we are also soul and we are also mind. And so when God begins to talk about what, what, what um, relationships look like, sexual and non-sexual, what families look like, what people look like, what humanity looks like, he has a broader picture of flourishing and of beauty, and that's his intent. Um, so we have in the creational account what beauty looked like, what flourishing looked like. We had a vertical relationship. Man and woman were right before God walking in the cool of the day. They were exposed. Literally, they were naked, or depending on where you're from, naked. Right? And then, and then, and then um, next to one another, horizontally, their relationship was right. They were exposed before one another. There was, there was shalom. It was the way it was supposed to be. Well, then comes Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is when, for the first time, we wanted to make up our own worldview. For the first time, we wanted to be uh, uh, self-focused. So you have, you have Adam and Eve in the garden. Eve is, 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 is uh, by the tree, the forbidden tree that God said not to eat from. And then a serpent crawls up. Actually, the serpent was walking at the time. The serpent walks up, begins to talk to Eve. Now, this is just pastoral counseling here. Whenever um, a serpent starts talking to you, it never, historically, has never turned out good, right? So just run. A serpent begins to talk to Eve, and, and then in that, um, it's Satan influencing now Eve and saying, did God really say that you could? Come on. He doesn't want you to know some things. Like, he's holding back from you. He's limiting who you are. And, and what he was tempting her with was, you know, autonomy, to be a law unto yourself. And Eve says, maybe you're right. And she takes from the fruit, and she eats it. And then her husband, who's right next to her, says, huh, I'm going to do the same thing. And from there, chaos, destruction, every single thing that has is, is affected the, the world, everything, everything from cancer to lying, death now entered into the world because we wanted to be a law unto ourselves. I would argue that now our culture as Americans, we've taken Genesis 3 and we've owned it. Because Genesis 3 was, I want to be a law unto myself. No one can tell me what to do. God may, if he is a God, and he, he may not have the best for me, I have to figure out what's best for me. And whatever my, my, my impulses, my feelings are, that's what I will basically say is truth. And that's the type of life or man or woman that I'm going to be. Because we live in a very individualized culture. We, we, we say, we don't say, let's do things because it's truth or because it's beautiful or because it promotes human flourishing. And especially when it comes to sexuality, the three things that we say is, is it consensual, right? As long as the other person wants to do it. Um, as long as I'm not judging anybody else and I'm not hurting anybody else. If those three things are there, if it's consensual, I'm not judging and I'm not hurting anybody else, then go for it. Go for it. That's, that's, that's the way we look at things. And so we look at Genesis 3 and whether you hold the biblical conviction of, of, of worldview or not, man, that's experience now. It is whatever I want to do. Now, if you're back... And Romans, that's what Paul has been arguing last week and this week and next week. God said, do what you want to do then. I've given you beauty. I've given you a bigger picture, a bigger framework. But you don't want it. You have denied it. Um, You have suppressed it, he says in Romans chapter 1. That by your unrighteous activities and acts, you have suppressed it. And he's speaking to all of humanity. And that's the position we're in. And he says, therefore, his wrath is coming. And now we're going to walk back through. He says, wrath is coming. And again, we, we don't like wrath. 
We don't like it. We don't think God could be wrathful because he's loving, right? And we talked about that last week. Um, we all believe in justice, all of us. We, we, we especially uh, in a context like ours, we, we love social justice. We don't like when people are downtrodden. We don't like when people are abused. We want to speak on their behalf. We believe in justice. Even, even think about the things that we watch on TV or the movies we watch. There are certain moments where we go, yeah, wrath is necessary there. Um, have you ever seen um, the movie, this is, this is uh, Jim Mullins always talks about, this is great. Have you ever seen Man on Fire with uh, Denzel Washington? Maybe not. I'm not sure what the rating is. If you did, you could repent later. But um, this movie is, is Denzel Washington and then Dakota Fanning, like little Dakota Fanning, like cute Dakota Fanning when she was more Dakota and less Fanning, whatever that means. So there, there, she, gets, she gets abducted by these people in Juarez, and, and, and Denzel Washington is kind of the guy to go get her. Well, there comes, there comes a moment in the movie where he makes his line. He goes, they all must die, like the people who have captured her. No one in the theater is like, no, no, that's not loving, right? No, everyone is like, no, yes, they must all get him, Denzel, right? Everyone is there, right? Because of this little, beautiful, loving girl. Like, you take that in the context of God. God creates this beautiful world of which we've said we are all guilty and ravishing. And so now his wrath is being revealed and there's consequences. And Paul says, the consequences is we don't worship God. And he gets to verse 26 when he says, for this reason, God gave them up to the dishonorable passions, means desires. Um, these are desires that are no longer bent towards God. This is no longer Adam singing a, a song to his wife. This is no longer Eve walking in the cool of day with God. This is no longer us being born into this world, a loving God and following him. Um, this is brokenness, and this brokenness, it shows its place everywhere. And when Paul talks about passions here and he talks about desires, he's talking about any type of desires that are not bent upon the Lord. Whatever your desires and whatever your compulsions may be, he's saying that, that, that God says this is a form um, of the consequences of not worshiping him. And he says he gave them to their uh, dishonorable passions. And then he says women, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. So when he says contrary to nature, he's saying this is not what God designed this is not biologically natural. But he's saying that, that now when, when, when you act upon that sinful desire, that, that, that it's no longer natural. It may be instinctive, um, but it's not natural. And we'll, we'll, we'll pick that apart here in just a second. And what he's talking about is women engaging in homosexual activities with other women. And then he doesn't just stay on women there. He goes to men. And he says this. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, now here's, here's what Paul is saying. Um, when a man engages in any sexual activity with a man and with a woman engages with any sexual activity with another woman, um, no matter what the context, um, he's saying it's sin. And, and um, hear me on this. It's not sin because it's gross. It's not sin because it's wrong. It's not sin because you would never do that. It's not sin because how, look, look how bad that is. It's not sin. It's not sin because of any, because of, it's not sin because of AIDS. It's sin because it goes against the created order and the flourishing and the beauty of what God has set forth. The, the, the problem, with, the problem with, with Christians on this, why we haven't thought well about this, 
is because so long our culture was like, yeah, we agree with you guys on this one. And now our culture's going, I'm not really sure. And now we've had to think or we haven't thought. And so many of us just grew up being like, it's gross, it's wrong, no one's ever going to do that. I mean, you, you, especially those of you guys who are older, you never would have thought 15, 20, 30 years ago that, that we would be in a, in a country where we'd be voting on same-sex marriage. You never would, never would have thought that. Never would have thought that. They're like, there's no way. Well, now that that way is here now, and now Christians are now starting to think about it, we, we just, it's just wrong, it's gross, go to, go, to, go to Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's just, it just becomes a very wrong, I would say Christians, a very wrong way at framing the question. It's a, it's a bigger question than, than why is this particular sin a sin? Because what Paul is doing, what Jesus did, is saying all sexual immorality is sin. I mean, your porn addiction, your chronic masturbation, um, your looking and lusting for somebody else's wife, the wife who's not yours, the husband who's not yours, your, rom- your romantic um, fantasizing, the books you read, the movies you watch, all of those things, Paul's saying, yeah, that, that goes there too. Like, all of that goes there. And so it's not like, so, so again, homosexuality and practicing, excuse me, practicing homosexuality is not a sin because it's disgusting. Most of us in this room, right? Most of us in this room go, I, I can probably struggle with anything. I may never struggle with that. Probably true. Um, but that doesn't make it like any worse because you can't struggle with it or you don't struggle with it. Um, it it's not the worst sin. Um, it's just sin. And so we want, we, we, we want to treat it like all other sins, um, realizing, though, this is a particular sin that, that, that people don't really get. People really don't get. And so I want to make it clear. We do hold a conviction that all sexual morality, all of it, it's sin. And therefore, what Paul says here, it's sin as well. All right? I want to go through some objections that we've had to this. Um, the first is homosexuality is not a major biblical theme. So why does Paul emphasize it here? True. It's not a major theme. I mean, you can't just ch- trace a thread line. If you could take a theme of grace, of covenant, and go from Genesis to Revelation. So why does Paul go here? Well, first of all, Paul goes here because I think Paul now, in a list of sins, if you guys are, had your Bible, just, just uh, walk with me in a list of sins here. If you go to 28, it says, it goes again, it goes, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, again, going back to, they didn't worship God, God gave them up to a de- debased mind, verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, um, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders. I mean, he's trying to get everybody. Haters of God. Um, they're insolent, haughty, boastful, inventor of evil. This is like my favorite one. Disobedience to parents. Like, these are the ones when I was a student pastor. I'm like, do you see that? If you don't make your bed, you are. No, it's like, there's, there, there, all of the, he just, he lists a bunch of things. He just happens to start with this one. And the reason why I think he starts with it, honestly, I do think he starts because he's saying this is the most unnatural, right? Meaning this is the most unnatural. I think right now we, the, the studies would say 2% of the people in our country would identify themselves as homosexuals. 2%. So that's not a lot. Um, but he's saying even by nature, meaning just biologically the way that a man is made and biologically the way that a woman is made, that is natural. Again, that's it. I'm not giving you guys any, you know that. Um, and, and, and that's why Paul mentions it here. The other objection is this. But what's the big deal? It doesn't hurt anybody. And that's kind of what I was mentioning earlier. It doesn't hurt anybody, so why does it, why does it matter? Um, it doesn't matter. Be, things don't matter or not matter because it doesn't, it doesn't hurt anybody, right? There's a lot of things that I can do that wouldn't hurt people. 
However, it, it, it matters because I am not the inventor or the authority of truth and of order and of beauty and of flourishing and of justice and of wholeness and of shalom. God is. So that's it. There's a lot of things we can do. If we cannot make, as believers in Christ, we cannot make decisions, no matter what the decision may be. We cannot say, it were, I could do it because it's not going to hurt anybody. No, that's looking inward. That's not saying loving God and then loving your neighbor. We got to first and start, is this loving to God? Well, how will I know? Because Jesus says, if you obey my commandments. What well, is the commandments? The totality of scripture and what has been revealed. Earlier last week, um, Paul says that there's two ways. We said there's two ways God reveals himself in his word as well as his world. Meaning it's explicit in his word what God has said and also truth in his world. When it comes to this particular issue, the explicit truth, the special revelation in his word is that um, marriage is between a man and a woman and heterosexual, you know, committed relationship, uh, committed financially, socially, emotionally, and so forth. That's his word. The world says even that there's, pre- there's procreation um, ish- things that happen out of, out of that relationship or could that's possible. It's not possible biologically without science that happens in the world. I mean, so in the world, when you see that, when you see the way from the revelation of the world, the way creation is, the way man and a woman is made, that's, that's one reason. So it's not just does it hurt anybody. Um, it's does it honor God. And that's the question. Does it honor God? The, uh, the third question um, is, wasn't Paul really critiquing temple prostitutes um, and pedophilia? It's different, um, it's different than adults in loving, monogamous, consensual, homosexual relationship, isn't it? Okay. So this has, been, this has been a debate around Christians, very, very small Christians, but is that Paul, what he's talking about, and what Leviticus is talking about, when it mentions this, it's talking about only people who were doing it like, for like cultish pra- practice. It was worship and people who were, who, who were doing it with young kids. Like, that's, that's wrong. But what about two loving, consensual adults um, that engage into same-sex relationship um, under the authority of who God is? Isn't that, isn't that, that's not sin, right? Um, first of all, Paul is not just talking to the cult, the cult part of it. He's talking to all of it. In Roman culture, we have, we have evidence that there were um, monogamous same-sex relationships. Paul was in a Roman Greco world that was, I mean, we think homosexual um, practices are new today. That's not, they're not new. He talks about it. Um, there, there's all types of things that were happening in the book of Corinth and in Rome and so forth. And Paul is speaking to all of it. He's speaking to all of it. Um, and so that, that's, that's not just if it's consensual, then it's okay. Um, there's all sorts of other implications that come from that as well that are harmful. Four, a couple more. What if a person is born with same-sex attraction? Would it then be sin to abandon their natural desires? Like, if I was born with same-sex attraction, first I would say this. Um, there has not been clear empirical evidence yet of a so-called, what they called so-called gay gene that people are born with, with it. However, however, most people you talk to would say, as far as I know, I have been attracted. And I would argue, you're not... You're probably attracted later in life. Um, as kids, we may have crushes. There's a difference in a sexual attraction, um, but, but, but not to, to limit your experience. And that is just saying, okay, even if you are born with it, let's just say they come out and they prove that you're born with it. It does not change the biblical conviction in which we hold and which the Bible is taught. Here's, here, here's what I mean by that. Um, there, there is a language called orgasmic congruence. What that means is you live and you become who you are by your impulses. That's who you know you're supposed to be. That's what this question is getting at. Well, aren't you suppressing who you were made to be if you're not? Um, and there's another thing called telic congruence. And that means you become who you know you're supposed to be. Your values, your beliefs, and what shape you. 
We would argue for the latter. It's not suppressing your biology. Because if you take it outside of the context of homosexuality, there are p- people in this room who are predisposed or more likely to be more angry or uh, m- more of a, a liar, or de- depending on what happened in their life, that we couldn't say, ah, you, you know what, keep lying. Because you know what, you're suppressing who you are. Or we don't really know who you are. You haven't told us the truth yet. You know what I mean? We don't, that, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sense there. But um, it's not suppressing who you are. And here's what I would say. There's a difference between being created one way and being one way. God didn't create you that way. God, God did not create you to be whatever the sin may be, you name it. Um, sin has affected us. And that way, it goes different ways. And I, honestly, this is where it's hardest for me as a pastor. Because when you sit down with people, and, and that's, all, I mean, that's, that's, that's all they can think about. And, and meaning, like, not that their life does. I mean, all they know is I cannot be attracted to the opposite sex. I did not choose this. And we're, we're going we're gonna to talk about this in just a second. So here's, here's, here's the last one. What hope is there for those who are expressing or experiencing same-sex attraction or same-sex orientation um, or have taken away um, or have taken a, a gay-slash-lesbian identity? Um, if you have your Bibles, could you turn to the left to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? And so if you're in Romans, it's the very next book. Um, it's chapter 6. It's probably my favorite passage to talk about when and sin in general. And I, the answer that I'm going to give to this last question of what hope does anyone who struggles with this particular identity have, it's the same answer to anybody, whatever hope we have. And here's what Paul says in chapter 6, verses 9, um, speaking to the church in Corinth. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers or, um, will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so far, what, what, what historically Christianity has done a good job at stopping there and going, you see this? Drunkards, people, they're not, and homosexuals, they're not going to heaven. And it goes, man, this is, this is terrible. But the good news in this, which is always good news, is why we can talk about anything in, in, in the context of church uh, assembly, because we have good news. No matter how bad it's been up until this point, we have good news. Well, here's, here's what Paul says. You've got you to continue. Um, these are some of the best words in the Bible right here, verse 11. And such were some of you. What that, what that means is, in the audience of which Paul is talking to, in the audience and whenever I talk to, there are people who were drunkards, uh, swindlers, whose alarm went off. Um, there, 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 there are people who, who, are, who are in our congregation that have and still struggle with these issues. But here's what Paul says. Such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What that means is there's no sin that's exempt from the gospel. That when Jesus, think about this, when Jesus went to the cross, Jesus died for people, but Jesus also died for persons. I mean, he died for you. And that means no matter what your struggle is. And so if it is a same-sex attraction or orientation, no matter what your struggle is, the power of the gospel, the work of Jesus on the cross, his resurrection, the new life matters. This when it applied to any area of your life, it does bring about change and healing that you were washed and so that means when we, when we get to heaven and, and the kingdom is fully restored, when we start to hear everyone's story, we're going to go, wow, we're going to be surprised. We're going to be surprised. 
Well, Paul, Paul is not coming into Corinth. He's not coming to Romans, and he would not come to Tempe and go, I don't know what to do. You, don't have, you have no hope. He hands out hope to everybody through the gospel. I would not talk about this issue if I didn't think there was hope. If I didn't think there was hope. I wouldn't, we wouldn't talk about any issue if we didn't think there was hope. That's why we always come back to the cross. We always come back to the only way that can make us change in any area of sin is the forgiveness of Christ, the blood of Jesus, that only forgives us of our sin, but gives us the only motivation to live a new life. Amen? We're going to come back next week, and we're going to unpack this, but I can't leave this door open. i got to close this one because I mentioned something about choice. And so I'm going to mention a few things here, and then we're going to close, but I I can't leave this open. And if you're here and you're going, gosh, I want him to say, say more or... I'm already sold off on this. you got to come back next week. You have to. God's not telling you you have to come back here next week. He could be, though, through me right now. you got to come back next week. All right? First is, 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 is same-sex attraction a choice? Is it a choice? No. Not always. 99.9% of the time, it's not a choice. That people aren't going, I'm choosing to be attracted to the other person. Um, the only, I've heard of one person who, because she said because of her desire in the feminist movement to see women be empowered, that she forcefully and intentionally pushed, pushed herself upon women to the point where she now developed an attraction. Um, she's a professor, and I can't remember the university, but, but that was the only person that I've, that I've researched in the past seven years that have said that. Most people I talk to go, I didn't choose this. I didn't choose this. Second thing, it's a lonely place. To have same-sex attraction and same-sex orientation, especially as a Christian, they're, they're, they're identified usually as sexual minorities anyway because there's only 2% of the people that think like that. Um, in, the Christian, in the Christian culture, it's even worse because a guy shows up to accountability group and he goes, yeah, guys, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with my girl, you know, we, you, know, we keep, you know, we keep messing up, you know. And guys are like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally get it, man, yeah. Let me pray for you, right? But if a guy came in that same group and said, hey, you know what? I'm attracted to men and I'm struggling with sleeping with my friend. That's exactly the response that they get. And and that's hard. You guys know what it's like to carry a, a, a secret sin, right? Or even a secret battle. It's hard. So imagine how lonely that is. And we don't have a whole lot of people that can come alongside them and say, I'm really gonna encourage you in this and walk with you in this. And that's not even, here, it's not a sin to be attracted to somebody. It's not a sin to, to like someone of the same sex. What Paul is saying is when you act upon that. But what makes it easy to act upon is when you don't have a loving community that can come alongside you. Where you can truly be open with everything. We say we're really transparent. Well, then when someone says that, it's like, yeah, we'll be here for you, dude. We'll be here for you, girl. And then what happens is you get, even, you get weird. You get weird and you get weird. And all of a sudden, it's like they're, they're ashamed that they even told you. The other thing is this. Um, it's not always about sex. The homosexual community is not always about sex. It's not only they're just, they're just, they just want to have sex all the time. That's one to know, just in broad. Um, and then this is another one. Heterosexual attraction does not cure it. <laughs> Some people, you know, I've heard people say, they tell their parents, hey, I've been struggling with same-sex attractions. How do you know have sex with a girl? Christians, whose dad has been saying the whole time, keep your purity, keep your purity. Oh, what? Oh, no, 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 have sex with a woman and see if it's true. That doesn't cure it, right? Um, and, and, and here's the other thing, too. Just because Jesus can wash you and cleanse you doesn't mean that you're always going to change. And we're going to talk more about this next week. That you will be forgiven. Some people, God takes it away. And they are attracted to the other sex. They are. And they have, they have relationships. They still struggle. Um, men and women that I know that are part of our congregation that are like, I'm married, have kids, and I still have this struggle. But here we are. Some people, they never they are always attracted to the opposite sex and with deep, deep urges. And they, and they as a spiritual discipline, choose celibacy. And again, we'll unpack this next week. Um, 
Parents, affirm your kids. Affirm your kids. Be with them. Love them. It's amazing how many people that I talk to that are, that are uh, struggling with their sexual identity, how much it stems from parents. What they say, what they don't say, what they do and what they don't do. And don't do it because you're afraid of your kid becoming gay. Do it because God loves you and God loves your kid. We don't do anything out of fear. Um, Here's the last thing that I would say. Um, In response to the gospel, we have to love well. If there's one conviction I've had over the past six months and really digging into this issue, is we don't love well. And what I mean by that is loving well is being really good friends. Not just community for community's sake. It's not just a good beer and a coffee, right? Like loving well, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Um, if we had a community that loved each other well in non-sexual ways, not only will our singles not feel the pressure to have to get married, I think it would, it would help us actually develop a bigger, a bigger community of, of chastity, which I know that's an archaic word, but um, a purity. Because I love you not because of sex. I just love you. And I love you because Christ first loved, first loved me. It means I'm going to be comfortable with being uncomfortable no matter who you are. This has nothing to do with same-sex attraction. This has not to do with people. I said this earlier. We have, we, have, we have told a lie that the highest degree of intimacy is between a man and a woman and um, marriage and sexual intimacy. And biblically, that's not. The highest degree of intimacy, as we see throughout Scripture in the New Testament, it's the church. And it's a loving community that is honest with Scripture, honest with God, and honest to one another. Moving forward, not just on this issue, but as a people, that's where we have to get better. Like, friends. Loving people, being with people, and like Jesus said, this is what a friend does, laying down our life for people. Amen? Let's pray. Father, give us your wisdom. Give us your grace. Father, I pray that you would give us clarity in our own lives, humility, God, and Father, just your way. God, help us to see that everything that you've given us in, this, in, this, in, this, in your word, everything you've given us in Christ, Lord, is for our good, to be able to bring you glory and, Lord, for us to flourish and to give an example, Lord, to those around us of the love that we have in Christ and of your love that you have for this world. God, we, we just confess, Lord, our need for you, every single one of us, Lord. And as we come to the table uh, this morning, Father, I pray that we would think hard about the work that Christ has done on our behalf and how he has called us to himself to absolutely shape us and, and, and to mold us after the image of which we were originally created. And so God, give us grace as a community to love well, to give our lives for each other, for each other relationally. God, in ways that bring you honor. In Christ's name, amen.